So uh, people have been asking me the same question for the last few months. You can probably guess what it is. What are you going to do when you retire? And my answer is always, I have no idea. I don't know. I do know one thing. I want to play more golf. Right? I know that for sure. I'm a lousy golfer. Ask Dean. He's golfed with me many times. I am so bad. It sucks. Right? But I play with this one guy every now and then who is a pro, like a CPA pro or CGA pro. And uh, what he will do um, typically is watch me for nine holes. It must be really painful for him because he just, he could count, he couldn't count on two hands the, the, the lousy way I hit the ball. I have a friend who every time we played together, he would say, Ian, of all the ways that shot could have been taken, I never thought of the one you just used, which I took to be a compliment until I thought about it. But my friend who's a pro would, after nine holes, would say, do you want to know one thing that I think would improve your game? And by that point, I am dying for, yes, please, I beg you, tell me the one thing. And so what he has done is watched nine holes and then strategically suggested, if you did this, it would probably change your game. It usually has to do with um, my posture, the ball, um, addressing the ball, where my body is in terms of the ball, and where my head is. Um, but it's usually, it'll be just this one thing. And when I get it right, um, it actually improves my game. So I was thinking yesterday, as I was uh, assigned this sermon, <laughs> um, if people were to ask, what's the one thing that I could do to improve my year? Like, is, is there one thing that pastorally I could suggest that would improve your year? There are lots of things that we are intending to do. We've got lots of resolutions, lots of hopes and dreams. But what is one thing that you could do that would improve your year? So I want to propose today something that I'm sure... If you get it, and if I get it, we'll improve 2024 for us. We'll make it a different year. And uh, at the end of the sermon, I hope you're able to say back to me what it is that I'm suggesting you think about doing. Um, but I'm addressing the whole question of perspective or, or posture. And the thing that I think would make the biggest difference for my life and for yours that one thing would be to adjust my bearings. And you think, oh, great, yeah, I'm sure that makes sense. Adjust my bearings, I have no idea what you mean. So I know that, and I hope by the end of the talk you'll know what I mean, and you will decide whether you will be able to adjust your bearings or not. So our bearings are sort of um, our perspective on life, um, our understanding of what we're seeing, where we are, um, what the environment is around us in, in this year to come in particular. As we think about adjusting our bearings, what I want to do is propose to you that you change your bearings from being the bearings that are about there and then to the bearings that are about here and now. So by the end of my talk, I hope you'll be able to understand what I mean by that and whether you agree with that, and whether uh, scripture agrees with that, and whether we as a church agree with that, 
that we may have a perspective, our, our bearings may be to do with there and then instead of here and now. And I would like to adjust my bearings and yours consistently to here and now. If we address our year that way, I will think we'll hit a better shot. I think our game will improve. What do I mean by that? And I'm going to unpack it for the rest of the time. What I mean is that we need a new cosmology. And you say, that doesn't help unpack it at all. And we need a new eschatology. So I've mentioned that a few weeks ago. And it was received with the same kind of dazed look on your faces that I see right now. What I mean by that is our cosmology and our eschatology are about there and then, oftentimes, instead of being about here and now. So I'll back that up a little bit. Um, the idea that we think of there is um, to do with our cosmology. When we think about our Christian lives, when we think about the afterlife, we have grown up with the language about dying and going to heaven. And when we have adjusted that, even then, we tend to revert to, yeah, when we die, we go to heaven. We go there. So our cosmology is a cosmology of there. It is, we don't know really quite what it is, but it's not here. It's there. It's someplace we go. We don't really know how we get there. We don't know what it'll be like when we get there. Uh, we have all kinds of stories that help us yearn for it, but we're not quite sure what it means. And when we think about what's going to be in the future, we think about that always in terms of then. We think about it in terms of a timeline, that after we die and after whatever the Bible talks about, about the events that will be here on earth and the things that will be happening in the heavenlies, way, way, way on down the road is the then. So our, our lives, our bearings, are, are really those kinds of bearings in which um, we, we don't think so much about here. We think about the there that we're going to. We don't think so much about now, unless we're thinking about how now uh, improves the then or informs the then or gets us ready for the then. But it's not about now, it's about then. So. When, when we get there, um, then these things will happen. In the meantime, we're sort of left wondering, well, okay, but what about here and now? Um, is my faith um, needing an adjustment towards the here and now? So I think we need a new cosmology and a new eschatology, and I'm going to unpack that, so I hope it'll be a bit clearer for you as we go on further. Where does this all come from? Um, so I'm going to back up and try to provide like a biblical basis for this shift in our bearings. So two times in the Gospels, we're told the very same thing that was spoken by John the Baptist and by Jesus. Here's what, here's what we're told. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So I want you to think about here and now, or there and then. What is this about? The second time we read it about this is that Jesus says the same thing. After John was put in prison, 
Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So in, in my early Christian years, um, I read that to say, repent, um, the kingdom of God is going to come soon. Um, and it's like that perennial um, you know, guy shouting at the corner of Young and Bloor, repent, the kingdom of God is coming, repent or you're going to go to hell, repent, and, and so on. And it's all this, because yeah, on down the road, something is going to happen. And we're not sure why it didn't get fulfilled, because it looked like Jesus was saying what John was saying, which was that the kingdom of God was going to arrive soon. Um, and did it? The, the word that we're going to kind of camp on today is time. And we'll think a little bit about kingdom as well. But as I understand that verse now, what John was saying and what Jesus was saying was not that the kingdom was going to come sometime soon, but the kingdom of God was actually near. It, it's, it's a proximity. It's not a temporal thing. But John the Baptist and Jesus were saying, it's already here. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's nearby you. Uh, I talked a few weeks ago about the idea of thin places and the sacred places in this world and in our lives. When it seems somehow or other, the other world is nearer than we thought. Almost palpably near, that you could reach out and touch it and feel it. John the Baptist was saying, everything has to change because the kingdom of God is here. It's, it's near you. Jesus said the same thing. You need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near you. Now, when Jesus said the time has come, um, he uses my favorite word for time, and we're going to talk about that just for a moment, um, which is the word kairos. So in the Greek language, there are two ways to talk about time. One is kairos and one is chronos. I explained that sort of to you a few weeks ago. But even though I learned this like 20 years ago, I'm still trying to learn it. Like honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to grasp. I think it's very important. And, and I think I'm discovering the nuances and the differences but it's very important that I keep coming back and saying, have I drifted back into living a Kronos life or am I still searching for a Kairos life? Okay, so what, what is the difference? So Kronos uh, gives us the word chronology. It is time on the clock, time as it passes. What time is it? It's a chronological question. Kronos will be the answer. Kairos is not the passing of time, but it's the kind of time. And I said, when we talked about that before, that uh, June 4th is important to me, right? June 4th is important to some people in the room, but not to many. Because it was my wedding anniversary, his birthday, right? Now you know. So it's Kairos to you. Yeah, what day is it? June 4th. June 4th is a different kind of a day. So Kairos is a different kind of a time. It's time that is... Um, Radical. It is time that is shifting. It is time that needs to be marked, that needs to be remembered, that needs to be understood. And when Jesus and John the Baptist were speaking about this, Jesus was not saying, the time has come, the kingdom has arrived. 
It's not that, did, did you notice what date this was that I'm speaking to you? It was like AD, one or two or three or something like that. No, he, he was saying the kind of time that we are now in is kingdom time. The kingdom is not something that chronologically will arrive in years or millennia, because that's what we've drifted into. The kind of thing that Jesus is talking about is the phenomenon that everything is now different because the kingdom has arrived. And when we live with Kairos kinds of notions, we seek um, day by day to, to find a Kairos in the midst of the Kronos. We, we will live 2024 um, productively for the kingdom to the degree that we look every which way to find out is there a Kairos here. Um, Will something happen today that is not just because it was today in terms of the calendar? Will something happen today that will turn everything upside down or right side up? That will change someone's life forever? That will change our life forever? That will change our church forever? Will something happen that we won't just note as something that should be remembered because it happened on this day? Well, something happened that should be remembered because it changed everything. And the more I can live into that, um, the more 2024 will become a, a, a great game that I get to play. So, so let's go a bit farther with that. So Kronos is time, basically, on, in his passage. Kairos is, it happens in Kronos. It's as time moves along. But it's something that needs to be marked as everything is different. It's not just the same as yesterday. It's not even the same as tomorrow. So we'll mark the, the kairos uh, moments as we move along in our chronos. And we work through a cycle um, that Jesus and John the Baptist identified. And that is that as chronos gives way to kairos and the kingdom of heaven arrives, we need to take two postures. First of all, the posture of repentance. And secondly, the posture of belief. Jesus and John said, the kingdom of God is near, so repent and believe. Now, when we say the word repent, um, it sounds to you like, okay, okay, that means list the sins, list the habits, list all the things that are bad in my life, and repent of them. Say, I'm sorry, 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 I'll not do it again. And I believe that I will be able to be a better person. It's probably more healthy to think of those terms um, as unlearning and learning. To repent in, in Greek is metanoia, which means to change your mind. It's to think differently. It's not primarily to be sorry for what you've done, um, not even sorry for what is being done. It is essentially to change your mind. It's to unlearn what you have learned. And the things that we have learned as we put them on some kind of a ledger, we probably would have to acknowledge that many of the things that we've learned are either useless or harmful or bad, but we've learned them. And we actually need to unlearn them. And so even as we bring this to a close today, as we think about church, uh, Andrew is gonna be leading us through a review of who we've been, who we're going to be, and we need to rethink church in the sense that we unlearn the ways that church hasn't worked 
and learn the ways that church should work and will work. And we're committed to that, and I know that that's why you're here. But as we think about that cycle, that circle that we work our way through, um, the thing that I want us to unlearn is then and there thinking. So I want us, every time we think about heaven is where you go to, to say, wait a minute, I have to unlearn that. that that's not what I want to think about. As we think about what's going to um, be in the future, it's, it's not that we're going to be thinking, is it like seven years? The Bible talks about that a lot. Is it a thousand years? The Bible talks about that. And we, we want to say, no, I shouldn't be thinking that way. That's one perspective. That's one um, bearing. But it's a bearing that I need to move away and say, no, I don't think that way. And the thing I need to learn in its place is to live for now and here. What does that mean? To live for now and here um, is to understand that what John the Baptist and Jesus said was profoundly and eternally true, that the kingdom has arrived. The lordship of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, has begun. It, it won't begin as a millennial reign or something. That's the old sort of then thinking. But the kingdom of God has arrived. Like when John was going nuts in the wilderness, eating his ridiculous cuisine and saying ridiculous things, he was beside himself with joy and anticipation in saying the kingdom of God is near. Are you kidding? The king, everything that we have hoped for for thousands of years is here. And when Jesus came, he said he was exactly right. It is near. It is near in the sense that if you live with the understanding and the faith and the grace to practice, you will live into the kingdom of God. It will arrive in fullness later on. There's some work that has to be done in the heavenlies, so to speak. But it's already here. And if it's already here, um, the effects of its presence should be expected in our lives. So in 2024, if this is true, and that's what you have to decide, am I right about this or not? If I'm right about this, in 2024, the kingdom of God is nearer to you than you imagine. The effects of the kingdom, the presence of Jesus in your lives, in the lives of the people around you, um, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our world, it's all already here. We, we live in this beautiful ambivalence of here and coming, of here and not yet. Um, but we need to bend ourselves towards the great hopeful living um, that we're offered to. So as we follow the, the life of Jesus, um, we'll find that he actually uses this way of teaching people. Um, and in, in the unlearned side and learned side, um, we've talked about this circle and using these steps, that in the unlearned side, we um, would be helped by the discipline of observing, saying, okay, what am I seeing as I look at my life, as I look at my world, as I look at my relationships? And then we reflect on that. We think about, well, what does it mean what I'm seeing or what I'm reading, what I'm thinking about? And I'm going to discuss it. Who, who are the people that I'm going to say something to about this? And then I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to have an account and then an act. So let me show you how that works out in Jesus' teaching. First of all, he says, okay, let's have a look at creation. Let's have a look at the birds. So he says, think about the birds of the air. 
what they they don't sow they don't reap they don't do all these things and yet he says when you reflect on that um are you not more valuable than this so you're worried about so many things think about the birds and the fact they don't sow or reap and but your father takes care of them and so he says as as you reflect on that don't you know that you're more important than the birds so if worry is a concern in your life as it is in so many people's lives in these times of the the anxiety of, of the pandemic and all the rest. Worry is a plague. And Jesus would come alongside us and say, okay, here, here's an example of how you can unlearn and learn some things that would get you into the posture, in, into the zone um, of the, the now and then thinking that I'm, I'm looking for. As you discuss it together, um, who by worrying can add a year to his life? So Jesus says, you're, you're all worried, right? Well, think about this. The birds, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't... All, but your father looks after them. And when you consider that, are you not more valuable than they are? So who, by worrying, is going to change anything? We have a son who spent his life, spends his life worrying. And one day I said, Colin, has anything you've been ever worrying about really come true? And he said, not yet. And we laughed, but a lot of you are saying, yeah, me too. That's exactly how I think. Well, then what are we going to do about it? Jesus says, so seek first the kingdom of God. What do you do when you're worrying? You seek first God's kingdom because here's the truth of what we're seeing the kingdom of God is near. So search for it. And in the midst of worrying, search for it. And then let's be accountable for it. Um, if you search for the kingdom of God, all these things you're worried about will be added to you as well. They'll be taken care of. So we, we, we keep an account and say, um, when I trusted God, did he meet my needs? And it's, it's never as simplistic as when I asked him for this, this, and this, I got them. But where was he at work for his kingdom anyway um, in terms of supplying those things or supplying the things that we really need? And then acting is, um, Jesus says, so don't worry. It, it's that simple. He, you're having a sit-down chat with him, and he says, you're, you're so full of anxiety and, and worry. Well, just have a look around. And this is the sort of way that we think through um, being people uh, who have the right stance or have the right perspective or the, or the right bearings in, in their lives. So as we go forward, the thing that I think is called for is a new ecclesiology. So you've learned three, logic, three theological words today, right? Eschatology, cosmology, and now ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. The church needs to change, right? We, we all know that. Um, and, and we try incrementally, and we try start-overs. I think in many, many ways we are a start-over, right? I mean, we bring forward 
um, the history of our community, the history of our lives and our faith. But we come in a, in a new way to join together, to be a community. We come in a new way to commit ourselves to discipleship with ancient practices that if we had said 10 years ago, we'd be fixating on, we'd say, um, I don't think I want to be part of that. But now we are, right? We're thinking there are different ways. We need to unlearn the ways that the church was toxic, the ways that the church was toxic for your children, for you. And we need to repent of that in the, in the, in the pure repenting kind of a way. But we also need to unlearn them and say, let's not do that again. Um, let's not even do what we did because we did it and we think it was a good thing. Let's always ask, should we keep on doing that? Or should we do something different or, or new? Should we keep on thinking that way? Or should we think some new ways? One of my favorite writers is Pete Rollins. He's a crazy Ulster man from Belfast. A brilliant philosopher. But he has this undoing theology thing that he basically wants to cancel everything and kill everything um, because he's afraid of the reductionism that says there. We know that. We've got that. So he says that as soon as you think you know something, you need to repent of that and say, I'm sure I don't know what I think I know. And that is a great way to be is to be properly um, the kind of skeptic, the kind of agnostic that is intellectually, morally, ethically credible in this kind of a world. Um, I, I do hundreds of weddings. I, I did 200 and some weddings last year. Um, every couple, pretty much, that I marry where I marry them because of why they found me, um, they say we're, we're not religious. We're spiritual, like that's the, that's the cop-out. But, but from time to time, and I did yesterday, I say, why is it so important to you? Because they scripted in yesterday, no religious words, no prayers. And I, I asked them, why are you so angry about religious words and prayers? And they were a beautiful couple, and, and they told me. They, they just said, because it, it is hypocritical. Um, the institution is anachronistic. They are hypocrites. We do not want to be associated. So we don't want to be saying words that sound like we are religious people. That's a terrible thing. Like, you know, when, when our religion is actually, at its heart, a beautiful thing, when it's our, our human condition that even concocts religion, why is it that people who are not religious hate the thought of being religious? Why, why is it that we have to qualify? So, you, you know, when, when people say, I'm not religious, and I say, well, I'm not either, and they laugh and, and say, you have to be, you get paid to be, right? No, because I'm not religious. I'm not, I hate religion the way that it, it stupefies our lives and our heads and our hearts. Um, I love when the truth and the light of the kingdom um, begins to emerge and we, we begin to get glimpses and we say, I think it's true. Like even though I keep doubting and then learning again, I think it's true because of what I see. There's no other way to explain it. 
uh, but the beauty of the truth of the scriptures and uh, God's relationship with us. So we need a new ecclesiology, and let's, uh, let's be willing to say that and to chat with one another, to hold on to the things that are right and good, but let go of the things that are useless or harmful um, or dated or whatever it is, to press into a new ecclesiology. Milton does not yet know that we're here. Like, they know that we're here. They know that stuff goes on in here. But they're a bit afraid of what we are. They're a bit afraid of committing to what goes on in this kind of a building. So we have to break down those inhibitions and those concerns. We have to prove that we are like ordinary people with skin. And, and, and we are not sitting in judgment. We are not... Um, Condemning, we are people who are committed to the ethic of love in its, in its full-orbed manner, um, that we love one another because we love God, and we love a world because God loves that world as well.